Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be unpacking uh, James chapter 4 together, the next section in our study through James, an ancient letter, probably one of the first letters ever written by a Christian, trying to help other Christians who are still new to what Christianity means learn to live as if Jesus were true. It's written to friends of the author who probably hadn't been Christians very long, who were trying to understand who Jesus was, much less how Jesus affects their life in the world, and who were not having a very good run at it so far. It's written by James to friends who he had heard somehow were struggling to stay faithful to Jesus, whose lives were actually being shaped more by the the cultures where they lived than by the new culture Jesus came to build whose marching orders in life, if you will, were set more by their friends and neighbors who didn't know Jesus than by Jesus and what he had done for them. So James writes to give them wisdom, to know how to bridge the gap between what Jesus did and what Jesus said and where they're living, what each day calls for from them. Now, this morning, we come to James's most sharp, strong warning yet. The letter is full of warnings to his friends, The letter itself is almost like a giant warning sign about the way they were choosing to live their lives. This, This text this morning has the sharpest, most clear language of all. And it's a text about how to be a friend of God. It's a text warning them against being friends of the world and pointing them, pointing the path towards friendship with God. And the thing that's jarring about it in our experience, I think, is that James makes it perfectly clear you can't have it both ways. You will either be a friend of God or you'll be a friend of the world. There's no one in between. So to put a point on it before we get into the text, you, friends, every one of you this morning, you're either a friend of God or you're a friend of the world. This text is given to us this morning to help us tell the difference and to point us towards being friends of God. We want to ask of this text three three questions this morning that will help us walk through it. What is friendship with God? Who are God's friends? And how can I pursue friendship with God? What is friendship with God? What does that even mean? Who are God's friends and how can I pursue friendship with God? Those questions are listed for you inside the worship guide that you should have received when you're on your way in here this morning. You can follow along, jot down notes there. It'd be a great place also to, to write down a question if something's not clear. I'd love to talk to you about that after the sermon. I want to begin, though, by reading this passage, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's Word, if you will. Uh, while I read from, from James chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 4, and then I'm going to read all the way through verse 12. This is God's Word to us this morning. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. First question we want to, we want to work through this morning together is what is friendship with God? I think this is a question James gets at indirectly in the first couple of verses that I read, verses 4 and 5. Even a quick look at these verses, where he's, he's pointing to friendship with the world, even a quick look at these verses, I think, shows us that James has something way more intense in mind when he speaks of friendship than what we often mean by friendship. We have a lot of friends, right? In fact, I mean... When you, say, when, you, when you hear the word friend, you're as likely as not to think about like Facebook friends, where it's good to have as many as possible. It's a status symbol, right? The more you have, the better. But James is writing about friendship as something that's exclusive. Friendship, as James is talking about it here, involves intimacy, and it involves allegiance. Friendship, as James is talking about it here, involves intimacy and allegiance. Now those two things come out in the two images James gives us in these verses. Did you notice that? He writes, he addresses these friends, he labels them using two metaphors or images that helps us understand a little bit more about what he means by friendship. Two images. The first one is the image of the adulteress. In my my version it comes out, you adulterous people, it's literally you adulteresses. I mentioned before, this is James' strongest language yet. Here it is. James is pulling from a long history in the Old Testament of God using language like this to describe how he feels about his people. One of the most common images in the Old Testament for God and his relationship to Israel was that of a marriage. God as the husband to Israel. Israel as the unfaithful spouse to God. James is pulling on it. Uh, on that imagery from, the, from Isaiah, for example, from chapter 54, Jeremiah chapter 3, or especially from a prophet called Hosea, where God tells Hosea, this early prophet, to go and marry a prostitute as a way of picturing for Israel what it was like for God to be married to them. Now James is taking that language, he's applying it, he's applying it to his friends living in the Roman Empire, because what, uh, inevitably what had happened is that these friends had decided they wanted to be with Jesus, but then sort of moved on with their lives. What they'd done now was started to take on their identity more from the people who lived around them than from Jesus and those who were being shaped by him. He's calling them adulteresses because there was too much of the world in them. James has already been pointing out lots of different examples 
earlier in this letter about places where they started to look more like the world than they looked like Jesus. So he wrote to them in chapter 2 against partiality. He talked about how they had people coming into their services, their, their worship times together, who looked really wealthy and really powerful, and they would usher them right down to the seat of honor, put them right there at the front where everybody could see them, where everybody could celebrate the fact that they were there. Everybody wanted to be, wanted to be in on the favors of this powerful person. And then he talked about someone who's poor, someone dressed in shabby clothing, someone who really didn't have anything to offer anyone coming in and and really being neglected or even worse, being shamed. He talked about them taking that kind of person and saying, here, you sit here, you sit by my feet. Well, when they, when they treat people like that, what are they doing? James is saying, you're, you're treating that person like you're a friend of the world. That's the way the world treats people. In the world, this, this realm outside of God and his, and his plan, his purposes, you, you really have to do what you can to get ahead. It's important that you use every opportunity to get some sort of advantage, a leg up in the world. So, of course, you treat the powerful better than you treat those who aren't powerful. Or just last week, we talked about how they were in this community. They were fighting with one another. They were having all these quarrels and struggles, and they were coveting. They were really envious of each other. And that makes sense in the world. Of course, you want what that other person has. Of course, you'll do what you have to do to get it from them. It's kill or be killed. It's dog eat dog. That makes sense in the world. James is saying, but you are not of the world. So, so in Jesus, there's a whole new set of things that make sense. But his friends had been adulteresses. They had been flirting with. They'd been giving their hearts to. They had been intimate with the world and its way of doing things. Instead of the God who had come for them in Jesus. Friendship with God is like this. It's intimate. It's exclusive. It's life-orienting. It's that kind of affection. It isn't casual. You can't have this sort of affection for God while also nursing a, a crush or having a fling with the way of life or the values that God hates. You can't tell God to lighten up any more than a spouse could say to one with whom they've been unfaithful. It, it, it's just sex. It's no big deal. It made me happy. Why are you being so uptight? Do you really want to stand between me and what feels right to me? how serious it is that's how exclusive friendship with god must be it's intimate but then he uses another image so he starts out with this adulterous image then he moves to the image of an enemy did you notice that verse four and five friendship with the world is enmity with god if you're a friend of the world you're automatically on the other side of a battle Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if the first image was a really deeply personal one, this one's more political. This one's more about allegiance. That one was about intimacy. This one's more about allegiance. That first one was about who will you love? You can't love both God and the world at the same time. This one's about who will you serve? You can't serve both God and the world at the same time. It's either or. Because the world is this 
sphere out there that is opposed to what God loves. The, the, the world is this sphere that loves what God hates. The world is what God has committed himself to, to ending, even though it cost him his son to do it. So by, by choosing friendship with the world, James is saying, you're acting like God's attachment to ending the world is no big deal. Think, of, think about examples from history of, of places that had been war-torn. Think about today. We just prayed for Syria this morning. Imagine yourself as a, a Syrian Christian who's also a Kurd. And imagine that there's a person who's saying that they're your friend while they're also buddying up with some ISIS commander who wants you dead. Well, that Syrian Kurd, Kurdish Christian would be right to tell you, you can't have it both ways. You can't be my friend and also the friend of the one who wants me dead. It's either or. So friendship with God, what is it? It it is not casual. It's like marriage. It's like citizenship. And it's always exclusive. Look at verse 5, or excuse me, yeah, verse 5. It's very difficult to translate. I don't know how your Bible will, will translate this verse. Here's how mine reads. Do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? I think that's the right way to do it, to translate it. It captures this theme all through the Old Testament that God is jealous for the affections of those that he made in his image. Friends, I know that might be a jarring concept, the idea of God being jealous, but I think it'll make sense if you think about it a little bit more. Probably, you feel that human life is sacred, that it's worth protecting, that there's a difference between human lives and the lives of other animals. Chances are, you ate some other animal yesterday, but would never think of doing that with another human. Whether you're a Christian or not this morning, you probably have that sense in you that human life is dignified and worthy of protection. And what the Bible says is that you're right and that you have that sense because God put it there. And that the reason human life is so valuable and worth protecting is that human life reflects something of God's life that in in us has been put a spirit that is, to use the Bible's language, in the image of God's own spirit. And God loves the spirit that he has put in us. He is intense in his affection, his devotion to that spirit. He does not take it casually. And so he can't just go ho-hum about someone who's running after some other affection. He isn't casual about friendship with us because he isn't casual about us. God doesn't do open relationships because his desire for those that he has made in his image is just way too intense for that. He is jealous. And his jealousy, this exclusivity of friendship with God, of intimacy and allegiance towards God, it comes straight from the fact that he is intensely devoted to, intensely loving towards 
those that he's made. He's not casual about who we love and about how we live because he's not casual about us. So, friends, the choice is there. You can, you can be a friend of God or you can be a friend of the world, but you, you can't be both because friendship just doesn't work that way. Not the kind of friendship that James is talking about. So that's what friendship with God is. It's an exclusive intimacy and allegiance. So who are God's friends? How's this landing on you so far? I wonder if it's challenging your view of God at all. Maybe, maybe, maybe you came in believing that, that you can't be sure if the claims of Christianity are true, if there is even a God out there. But maybe you've been assuming that if there is a God, He wouldn't be against me. If there, if there is a God, sure, sure, He'd be against evil and abusive people. He'd be against genocidal maniacs. But He wouldn't be against normal people like me. But James says that that's not true. That there's no middle ground. That either you're with him this morning or you're against him. You're his friend or his enemy. So where do you stand? Maybe through this description you've realized actually that you're God's enemy. And if so, verse 6 is wonderful news for you this morning. Here's what James says in verse 6. It tells us some, some beautiful new truth about who God's friends are. God yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us, James has said. But, but, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. So the friends of God are not, are not friends of God because they don't have issues in their past. They're not friends of God because their hearts always burn with this deep affection for Him. Because they never run cold. They're not friends of God because, because they always feel great when they sing songs about Him. Because they never feel attracted to any sort of sexual sin. Because they never say anything dumb, never hurt people or let people down. Those aren't the criteria for being God's friend. God's friends are the humble. Verse 6 says, God opposes the proud. God is enemy to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. What verse 6 tells us is that if you want to be a friend of God, you can be. No matter what you've brought with you here this morning. No matter how much of your time and attention you have spent living for the world. That this morning, you can be God's friend. It just means you'll have to be humble. What does that mean? It means you're going to have to realize that you don't have it on your own. It's going to, it's going to mean that you have to realize that, that you can't deserve God's friendship. It's going to mean realizing that humble are those who are low. 
those who recognize they are hopeless unless someone else is for them. The beautiful message of the gospel, the good news that the Bible is written to communicate to us, is that God is actually for his enemies in Jesus. And Paul, in another part of the New Testament, in, in Romans, a letter to the Romans, chapter 5, says that while we were still God's enemies, while we were opposing him, while we were friends of the world, shaking our fists at him, that's when Jesus died for us. So that we could be reconciled to God through his death. God's friends are those who are humble enough to recognize, unless Jesus died for me, I have nothing. It is God's grace that turns his enemies into his friends. And that can happen for you this morning if you're willing to trust in him. God's friends are the humble. And that can be you, whoever you are, whatever you've done, by God's grace. That's what friendship with God is. That's who are God's friends. What we want to do with the rest of our time is talk about how we can pursue God's friendship. Because that's the bulk of this text that I've read. That's what most of it is about. And it's also what we really need to hear. After we've heard Jesus is for us, we've heard the good news of the gospel, we need to know what do we have to do to respond to that? What does it look like for me to lean into the friendship God sent his son to create, to make possible, even for enemies of God like me? The rest of the text is given to to help us see that. Because this humility, this trusting in God's grace, doesn't mean that we then just sort of hang up our cleats and the game is over. It doesn't mean that we just sit by and wait. Because even though we can't deserve God's friendship, even though it has to come to us as a gift by His grace, even though His grace is where our friendship with God starts... we're still going to have to be all in. We're still going to have to pursue friendship with him. Just like a marriage starts with the commitments, the vows or the promises that a husband and a wife make to one another, but then from that context has to takes a lot of work, a lot of discipline, a lot of leaning into the new intimacy and allegiance that marriage creates. So, so this friendship with God requires us doing the things that humble people do, expressing humility in the way that we pursue him. And the rest of this text, so starting in verse 7 and all the way to verse 12, is just one after another after another command that helps us see what humility looks like. If we're humble, we'll do these things. And we're just going to track with them one by one. I just want to give you some quick-hitting Images to help you understand what James is saying we ought to be. If we want to be humble, and we know, the, we know that the humble are God's friends, and we want to be humble, this is how we pursue humility. It's what humility looks like. We're going to walk through them together. And I, th- I would encourage you to use this list of commands. To re- make sure you've noted which ones they are. Use that with your friends. Maybe in your small group, it would be a great chance to, to sort of evaluate yourselves and talk about what's going well and what isn't in this list of commands. Steps towards humility that James gives us. Let's just go through them together. So first one is this. First step in this sort of profile of humility is submit therefore to God. This is in verse 7. Because God opposes the proud, because he gives grace to the humble, because you can't be a friend of God and a friend of the world at the same time, submit therefore to God. It's a kind of summary of everything else that's about to happen. Think of all the other commands as kind of Uh, examples of what submission to God looks like in practice. 
And we, we need to get clear here on the submission to God because I think sometimes we think of submission as an end to something, right? As a, a kind of laying down of your arms, almost like a prisoner of war. You know, in, in wartime, when, when someone surrenders, they sit out the rest of the war. It's about acceptance and passivity. That's not what this image is meant to, to, to communicate to us. This is the kind of submission that takes on the battle cry of a commander. This is the kind of submission that says, I'm going to be with him and not with them. It's more taking up a banner. It's like an enlistment in a particular army or a particular cause. Think about, if you're familiar with the stories of Jesus, think about the submission of Jesus to his father as a good template for what this submission means. Jesus says in John's gospel, Jesus says that he came here not to do his own will, but to do the will of the one who sent him. And his whole life, everything he ever did with his life, he did because his father had told him to do it. So he was active. He was all in. His submission looked like every area of his life being shaped by his father's will for him. And that's what it would look like for us to be humble and submit to God to take our marching orders from him, that, that our commitment to him becomes this principle that guides everything about our lives. Now, it also leads us into these next examples. So, verse 7 continues. From submit yourselves, therefore, to God, next command is resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Come straight out of submission to God. Allegiance to him, allegiance to God, means opposing what God opposes. So we talked about this already. You can't be friends of God and friends of those that God is opposed to, friends of those that oppose God and want his agenda to crumble. So you certainly can't submit to God and then do anything but resist the devil. The Bible talks consistently about spiritual forces of evil out there that are real, that are working against what is good, that are always chipping away at what God has designed, at what God is doing at what God has made. They want to bring it down. So, but I think we need to be careful here. As we hear this call to resist the devil, and and sometimes I think we have some associations with what that would mean that aren't actually very helpful. That aren't actually true to what the Bible says about the devil and about what he's doing. So maybe, maybe you're thinking the exorcist, right? When you hear resist the devil. And you're thinking about some sort of incantation and some sort of like pale person with dark sunken eyes expressing lots of black goo across the room. Uh, That is not what James has in mind. There's two places in particular where the activity of the devil shows up. And in both places, what the devil's trying to do, really similar. Shows up in the story of the garden in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve are there in this perfect place, given God's words, God's provision, a place for them to live, have everything they need, and into that perfect place comes a serpent who starts to whisper to Eve, trying to convince her that she can't trust what God has said. Trying to convince her that actually she should just do what feels right. She should just do what she wants. It's better, it's better for you, Eve, If you seek your own advancement in the world, right? If you take this thing that God doesn't want you to have, you'll be wise like him. 
be better for you to be like him than to just depend on him all the time. His agenda was to get Eve and Adam to trust themselves rather than to trust God, to seek themselves rather than to seek him and what he had given to them. And then the same thing, he comes for Jesus. When Jesus is is in the wilderness, he's fasting, he's praying, he's preparing for his ministry, very similar setup to what happened in the garden, only with a very different result, where Adam and Eve believed the words of the devil instead of believing God's words When the devil comes to Jesus to tempt him in the wilderness, his agenda is pretty much the same thing. He tells Jesus, if you'll just bow to me, I'll give you this kingdom as far as the eye can see. Stop trusting the will of your father. What you need to do is go get yours. What you need to do is protect yourself. What you need to do is what feels right to you. In both places, agenda is the same. And and, and in your life, agenda is the same. So, according to the Bible, this spiritual force of evil, this devil, is behind those voices in your head that tell you to take the easy way out of a relationship that's hard. That those voices in your head that tell you it would be better for you not to trust that God will provide for you, but for you to cut a corner that will lead to a better career for you on your terms. It's a voice in your head every time you're told to trust yourself, to take what you can, to promote yourself, to protect yourself. It's that voice that's always telling you to think about yourself first. Resisting the devil looks like not listening to that voice. It looks like trusting God's words are true. Like if we're with him, willing to obey him even when it's hard, that he will provide for us. That friendship with God is a path to peace. The devil is always behind pride, always behind self-love, so we resist by never, ever leaning into those thoughts or desires. The third command goes hand in hand with this one. The third command comes out in verse 8. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. These commands are starting to build now. Submit to God. That means resisting the devil, pushing him back. And it means drawing near to God. And when you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. That order is about the opposite of what we prefer, isn't it? I think a lot of times we feel like if... If God would just come near to us, then of course we gladly come near to Him. We need to sense His presence. We need to feel something for Him. We need to get something out of of reading the Bible or worshiping with His people before we'll know we can really give ourselves to Him. But James is reversing that order. He's saying you draw near to Him first by faith, even when it doesn't feel like you might have expected it to feel even when it isn't as easy as you think it ought to come. You draw near to Him as an act of faith, trusting that if you draw near to Him, He'll draw near to you, just like He said. And friends, you can't draw near to God while you're also drawing near to the world. If, you, if you're struggling to find any traction 
in a relationship with him, to get any encouragement out of the Bible, to feel anything when you come here and worship. It may be that at the same time you see yourself drawing near to God, you're really drawing near to the world in all sorts of ways you're not even recognizing. If you're actively doing things that you know God's word has told you he hates, then you can't expect God to also at the same time draw near to you. You resist the devil, you draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. And he'll do it in the same places that he's always told us through his word that he does it. It's when he's, where he speaks to us. It's when we hear him from his word. It's when we're willing to pray to him, to tell him honestly what we're feeling and thinking, how we're, how we're responding to his word. And it's in his people. This is the body of Christ on earth. It's where Jesus shows up in the way that we love one another. If we want to draw near to God, we draw near to one another to get there. The way to draw near to him is clear. The question is, are we also sort of trying to hedge our bets by drawing near to the world at the same time? Are we waiting on God to prove himself to us before we're willing to actually give ourselves to him? The fourth command comes out also in verse 8. It's told us draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Next command, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This, is, this, this cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, pair goes together a lot in the scriptures. It's in the Psalms, several of the Psalms, where we talk about what's necessary to be in God's presence. How do you get to the presence of a God that's holy? Well, you've got you've to be pure in heart, your intentions, your motives, but you've also got to be pure in life. Your hands have to be clean. The hand, clean hands is a symbol for the actions that you actually do in your life, and pure heart is, is uh, uh, pointing towards motives that are behind those actions. The humble lean into this. The humble know that, that, that God's grace is the only way we get to come to Him, but God's grace always means becoming holy like He's holy. God is not willing to leave us where we were when He found us, in other words. And the humble know that, and they want to be on His agenda for their lives, not their own. So they lean in. The fifth command is another jarring one. comes out in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You don't expect to see that in the list, do you? Doesn't that sound like he's telling you to live in shame? To be wretched? To mourn and weep? What about all those psalms that talk about mourning being turned into dancing? I think what he's talking about is it's certainly not that we should live in shame. Guilt is a horrible motivator. When you're motivated by guilt and shame, it just leads to more failure, more guilt, more shame. It's precisely the cycle that the devil wants us in. Another part of the New Testament, he's described as the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of God's people. He loves to stand over them and remind them all the things that they've done wrong. He loves to entice you into doing things that God says you shouldn't and then beat you up with it once you've done it to keep you in a cycle of guilt and shame. That is not what verse 9 is about. So what's with all the language about grieving and mourning? 
The Bible is really clear that the only way to start seeing new patterns in your life is when you're motivated not by guilt and shame, but by love. When you're motivated by love for the one who made you and who actually came for you when you were still his enemy. And when you're motivated by a love for God, and when your life is starting to get more holy, when your hands are getting more clean, and your hearts are being more purified, when you start to look more and more like God, then ironically, you're going to start to see your sin the same way that God does. What sin is left in you is going to start bothering you a whole lot more than it once did. This love that you have for the God who came for you is going to cause you to weep over the pain that you cause him every time you love the world more than you love him. You will no longer be able to take sin casually, to laugh while in your life are all these things that make God pained. You will start to see your sin with the same seriousness that God sees it. And that will cause you to weep and to mourn. I see this even in my family. So when I know that I have caused pain to uh, my wife or to my kids, when I know I've hurt them, which happens, well, I deeply experience their pain because my happiness is tied up in their happiness. Because I'm identified with them so that, that I'm good when they're good and when they're not good, I'm not good, especially when I'm the reason they're not good. Because I'm motivated towards them by love. When we're motivated towards God by love, when we've been humbled to recognize that he's our only hope, that we have nothing that he hasn't given us, then we start to feel about our sin the same way he does. And it's what Paul calls a godly kind of sorrow. The kind of sorrow that leads to repentance. So friends, you're no friend of God if you can sin and laugh about it. God's friends weep when they recognize what they've done. And it drives them to greater joy in what he has done for them in Jesus. Here's the last thing, last command. Don't slander or talk down to other people. Verse 11 changes gears. We talked about all of this one-on-one us with God relationship maintenance, if you will. And now he says, his next command is, do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. What's he talking about? One of the things that sums up the law is the command to love others like you love yourself. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. You don't want yourself to be judged by someone who has no business judging you, right? So when you judge your neighbor, then you've, you've actually committed an offense against that law and the whole law to boot. Because what you've done is taken a position that's not yours. There's only one judge, James says. There's only one lawgiver. When you put yourself as a judge over other people, then you put yourself in God's place. You usurp his authority to judge. And instead of loving them, you belittle them. Instead of loving them, you act as if you are some standard they failed to meet. Instead of loving them, you spread talk about them that isn't healthy that doesn't build them up, but tears them down. So the point here is pretty clear. You can't be God's friends 
and the enemy of other people. You can't be God's friend and the enemy of other people. There's one judge, and it's not you. And the humble get that. So living as a friend of God never just means you and God being good. It always shows up in you loving others the way that God does, the way that God has loved you. It shows up in a culture where people just can't take it casually when they're talking about someone else. There's always a little bit of discomfort if that person isn't there because you know how easily it can slip into saying negative things about them. You never take that casually because you see them like God does. You yearn jealously over the spirit that he has put in them, just like he does. You see them with the kind of dignity that he has put in them, rather than yourself as standing over them. God's friends are the humble. This is what humility looks like. This is what happens when God's spirit gets in us and begins to shape us into his image. And this happens through prayer. So would you pray with me now while we ask God to do this work in us? Father, we know because we've failed so many times that we can't draw near to you like this, can't submit to you fully like you've asked us to. We can't resist the devil with any kind of effectiveness. We can't cleanse our own hands, that's for sure, and our hearts are way past our ability to purify them. And we can't even stop judging each other unless your spirit gives us a new way of seeing, unless your spirit helps us to see you, to see our sin, and to see each other in the way that you see all of these things. That's what we ask you for. We ask you to to help us to embrace our friendship with you with the same intensity that you have embraced that friendship. That you would draw us in because you have already come near to us in Jesus. Help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.